This is WMPG. My name is Dr. Anne, and this is Safe Space, a live forum for courageous conversations. Tonight is part of our series about families and mental illness, and I will be speaking with Issa Matei about her brother's schizophrenia. Issa Matei is a psychotherapist in private practice in Boston. She was originally a graphic designer and then a yoga teacher while studying fine arts at the Museum School in Boston. She is a practicing sculptor and painter at the Vernon Street Studios. She happens to be the fourth of eight children born into an Italian-American Catholic family. All of her grandparents were born in Italy. And her brother, Artie, who was the second oldest, had a nervous breakdown when he was away at his second year in college and then went on to be diagnosed with schizophrenia. And we're going to be talking about Artie and Isa's relationship. Welcome to Safe Space, Isa. Thank you. Great to be here. Let's start by hearing about Artie. Tell me a little bit about who he was before this nervous breakdown and then kind of what, what transpired after that. Sure. So he was three years older than I was, and I guess by reputation, quite a heartthrob. <laughs> he was very handsome, and a lot of high school girls had crutches on him. He was also very bright and quiet. And, you know, I actually hung around with my sisters more than my brothers. So he was, um, um, him and my brother, another brother was who was one year younger than him, kind of palled around a lot. It's, it's actually, I got to know him better after his illness. Interesting, which is, which is often not what we expect. How did you get to know him better after his illness? Well, it wasn't until my siblings and I got together and had him moved to Massachusetts because there was a larger contingent of family members here after my parents had retired to Florida. So Artie would come to um, my sister Karina's house every Sunday, and I was usually there or another sister, and that's those are really Sundays with Artie kind of thing. So. Mm-hmm. How, many, how many years did you have Sundays with Artie? Oh, I want to say 10 years or something. So that's a lot of time that your siblings would intentionally get together to be with, when it was primarily to be with him or just all to be together? Um, you know, I think he was in some ways the hub of the wheel. I mean, growing up in an Italian family, that was very family-oriented and, you know, Every Sunday at home, when I was uh, when we were children, you know, aunts and uncles would come over at different times, and I think in some ways it was almost like the template was set for that. Only now it was set a little bit more around art. Part of what strikes me is that your parents retired, and which is often a concern when there is a child an adult child with some form of mental disability or illness, about how, you know, will the parents ever be able to retire? Will it, will the child need to stay nearby and be dependent at some level all their life? Was this a, a brokered negotiation among your family that your parents could retire and that the siblings would then really take on this role of staying very connected to him? Well, I wish I could say it was brokered, but we, we don't have operate that <laughs> that organized so what what in reality happened is that my 
parents had tried to keep Artie home for as long as they could. But at this point, he was living in a halfway house set up. And they put off retiring. In other words, they would go down to Florida part-time. But because he was still in Long Island, they put off going down there full-time. And finally, they decided to do that. And when they did that, then we, you know, actually it was me primarily who did a lot of the um, legwork, which took about a year to get him to Massachusetts. So, so that's how that transpired. So maybe let's backtrack a bit, because part of what I think maybe both of us were hoping to talk about in this interview was the way in which your family did not marginalize your brother, the way in which he really was very integrated. And it sounds like that effort started so early in, in your mother's fierce determination to keep him at home. And I'd love to hear the story of her decision, you know, why that was so important to her, and then what were the challenges of that? Yeah, I just spoke to my mother again recently about it because um, I knew this interview was coming up. And I think it was just, she did admit that she just didn't want him institutionalized. I was actually quite surprised because she said that she had had him home for quite a number of years, like 15 or even 20 years, which is a huge amount of time during the whole childhood, pretty much of my youngest sister. And there were lots of challenges around that. She um, I, she said that her and my father, I mean, she was really the one who wanted to keep him home. It's not like my father didn't, but I think he was a little more clear-sighted in terms of the difficulty of it. And when another housing opportunity was available for him, because there was a state hospital that redid some of their housing so that it was more of a, um, it wasn't called, it wasn't a state hospital anymore. It was it was a building of the state hospital that was sort of operated like a halfway house. And when he had that opportunity, I guess they were more willing to to have him live there. So, so let's come back. So what, what I'm hearing you say is that your mother was very determined not to have him be institutionalized and that she was, as you put it, maybe facilitated in that by being less clear-sighted about what the challenges were. But give me an example to help me understand what you mean by challenges, and especially since I understand there were younger siblings in the home oh, at the same yeah. time. Well, you know, when, when Artie was doing well, it you know, of course it was okay. And I'm not exactly sure when Clozeril became a medicine that was um, available to him, but it was a real turning point in his um, mental well-being. But before that, um, he was really touch and go. I mean, my sister, my younger sister told me, you know, she one time already, like she was six or seven, and he came up to her and he said, I'm going to kill you. And she said she was terrified. She ran up to her room. She shut the door. But was even more surprising to her is she said, my father came up, it went up to the room, knocked on the door and said, okay, it's okay now, and went back downstairs. And she said she couldn't believe nobody talked to her. She was still too frightened to leave the room. So I imagine there were lots of 
I know there were times when, you know, my mother and grandmother, my poor grandmother, I mean, she, she didn't even speak English. She was, you know, would come and help my mother. And I guess Artie was getting really, really angry and throwing knives and they left the house and called the police. So there were some really dramatic stories and challenges. Yeah. So what I'm hearing is, on the one hand, it was important, it was protective of him that he didn't have to go and be an institution. But clearly, for your youngest sister, it was really frightening and at times very confusing because no one was explaining it to her. Right. And I think uh, there also was um, my brother, who is a couple of years older than my sister, so they really are the ones who were growing up when Artie was home and I think at one point my brother Robert shared a room with Artie and it was just really difficult um, that he's sort of like um, an unofficial comedian but one of his <laughs> one of his shticks is to tell the story of Artie babysitting them and blasting the Rolling Stones pacing the hallway chain smoking and um my mother is leaving him home as the babysitter, which doesn't say much about her judgment, but God bless her. <laughs> well, it sounds like she viewed him through the eyes of love and protection and couldn't necessarily see just how frightening that might be. For That's her. right. Mm -hmm. And in the end now, looking back, do you feel like that, while it was a very mixed blessing for your other siblings, do you feel that it was protective for him? Oh, gosh, that is a hard one. I'm not sure. It's hard because, you know, until the day he died, he was so connected to the family and especially connected to my mother. I think it would have had an impact on him to not be home. However, it's a huge sacrifice on my younger siblings and also on my parents, whether they admitted it or not, to have him home. Yeah. You know, I mean, she, my mom said she felt like she was always walking on eggshells. Well, and it sounds like it really genuinely got dangerous. He was throwing knives. Police were called, threatening to kill. I mean, these, were, these are really high stakes, very frightening things that could right. happen. So I'm going to fast forward now. You went on later when none of you were quite so vulnerable. As an adult, you brought him to live near you, and you spent every Sunday or most Sunday afternoons with him for 10 years. So as an adult, you really had a more intimate relationship than I would say most adult siblings have with each other now, uh, which is striking. I think it's hard to find siblings that spend that much time together. And I'd love to hear you talk about the quality of that relationship as it evolved as adults. Mm. When you say that, I just it just feels so sweet. I mean, I think we each so there were three, so, you know, me and my two sisters that probably had the most interaction with him. He would come, and he was really into different foods. I mean, I think being institutionalized, his world was narrowed. He was definitely into music, and my sister-in-law had bought him. A calendar of watercolor and he would paint I mean for I think four years he would paint these watercolor calendars and but he was very sweet he would just sit in the kitchen and he would talk to you of course this is when he was in a good mood which was more often than not 
And um, because he knew I was a therapist, he would sometimes sort of seek my counsel. And one of the things that, you know, I remember being touched because one time I told him, you know, feelings are not facts. And he really took that in. And when I would see him, he would say, feelings are not facts, right? You know? <laughs> mm. And when you said that to him, were you, were you implying sort of paranoia is not necessarily reality? Is that, is that what you were hoping to communicate? so much the paranoia it's just that he would feel bad you know um but yeah i guess so i remember taking him food shopping once and um he would um he went to the bathroom and he came out and he was all upset because he thought the person in the stall stall next to him was um mad at him for not being in the vietnam war because that was in his in his original illness was all about that war and, um, you know, and I would just say, oh, Artie, you know, I really can understand that you would think that, but it probably isn't true, you know, so in that vein. So take me back to his first psychotic break. How was it connected to the Vietnam War? Yeah, well, I, you know, when it was in my first year of college and I got a call from my parents saying that Arthur had had a nervous breakdown and so they drove to the school and it was really really hard for them because he was really ill and they had I think they had him tied down because he had tried to bite his finger off and it turns out that you know his roommates had been aware that he started to to kind of go off and there was just a lot of obsession about the Vietnam War and how he wasn't uh, because he was in school, he wasn't fighting it, and and he just lost it, you know, pretty dramatically. And, um, in fact, I was reading a journal that he wrote in 95 when I was asking him to tell a story, and he said, oh, I tried to burn my hands with cigarettes, and uh, it was just awful. And so then he was in and out of hospitals, you know, and as I said, my parents kept him home. When he started taking Clozarel, that seemed to be the medicine that kept him predominantly stable. And so after he went on Clozarel, was he was he ever completely psychosis-free, or did he live with a kind of baseline level of paranoia or uncertainty? I'd say there was a little, there was a baseline level of paranoia. And after yeah. the Clozarel, was he ever hospitalized psychiatrically again, or was it still? Yes, I mean, but that's a little bit, complicated because he had some medical issues and when he would go into the hospital to have that treated his meds would get off and then he would get off mentally I do want to ask you a little bit more about Clausrel. you've mentioned how important that medicine was and I wondered if you could tell me a little bit about how bad it got when he had to come off of it and how much better he got when he did get to take it Hmm. I'll tell you two things about that. One is that my parents, when he first went on it, and they noticed this huge turnaround with him, but then his doctor took him off of it because she felt like it was interfering with his um, some malfunction in his heart. And my parents worked for a year. They actually contacted the, the, the company that manufactures it and had the doctors explain that Clozeril did not affect the heart. So they they really went through a lot to have him be given that medication again. 
when when you said so they obviously advocated really hard to get him to take it and what was the change that they saw that made them so convinced it made a difference well you know i wasn't home at the time but i'll tell you a story that i know about how he was before and after um when my brother was in the hospital they they messed up the meds and he had to be hospitalized again and when i went to visit him he didn't know who i was he had lost a ton of weight he came out of his room naked he was standing at a sink with the water dripping over the sink standing in his own diarrhea it was like horrifying when he was not stabilized on meds he was literally out of his mind so that was after he'd been on it for a long time he had to come off and he just completely lost control of his mind and his body it sounds yeah. like he got he really disintegrated i mean i was sat on his bed crying telling the nurses saying he's going to get better and i was thinking i hope so but um they did get him stabilized again so they were able to put him back on clausrel yep and did it feel like he came back to himself yeah exactly you know, it's so powerful to hear that, Issa, because right now people are so suspicious of the psychopharmaceutical industry for good reason, I think. as You know, the marketing campaigns are so powerful and there's so much, so many millions of dollars to be made in profit. And yet this medicine clearly gave your brother back to you. That's right. So when we were preparing for this interview, you let me know that part of what you was motivating you to inter- to talk about him was how dear he was to you and how you really felt seen by him. Mm-hmm. And I was so struck by that because we so often think of people with schizophrenia as the receivers of care, the objects of care, as it were. And you were describing a relationship in which he really gave you something and was very much a giver as well as a receiver. And I wondered if you could tell me that story. Sure. During that time, he had almost died twice, so I'm not sure if it's being so close to death himself or just having a lot of the filters removed by going through such suffering that, I mean, I feel like he distilled what it was to be in connection. I get tearful talking about it, but he, it just, there was very little facade, you know, no, you know, and I just felt his love, basically, and loved him back. And I think, in a sense... So tell me a little bit, I know that you recently just rediscovered a letter he'd written that kind of captures that, and I wondered if you might read me just a bit from that letter about this. I bet you make a wonderful yoga teacher. I remember one time you wanted to be a museum curator. And then the next line is, the problem is that they have been stealing my writing for a long time. It's so hard to get out of the revolving door. So I find that that's so poignant. So here he is loving you, remembering you, valuing you, wanting to support you. And also just in the very next breath, letting you know that he was paranoid Mm -hmm. so it sort of holds all of it together in one this very loving human being who was quite ill and um sort of helps in some ways dispel some of the way we think about people with schizophrenia i think is often all of one thing only only psychotic only needing care as opposed to 
having so much to give, we don't tend to think of people with schizophrenia as having so much to offer. And your story really is a striking counterpoint to that. Did you do you know if your siblings felt also seen and valued and supported by him? I would yes, I think so. I mean, he he was really integrated into our lives. I mean, I was going through a box of things I have, and one of the things that he saved in his room were all these postcards that a friend of my sister's would send him whenever she would travel. And, like, all of our friends knew him. They would come, specifically come to say hi to him, and certainly the extended family. Um, He was really a part of the family, and people were very kind to him, but it wasn't just one way. I mean, I think in his own way, he did give back, do you know? Maybe this is a good moment to read that poem. So your sister Mary wrote this poem and read it at his funeral, and it would be so much better if you could read it, but I'm going to read it because you don't have it with you. So I'm going to read you just a few excerpts that capture this. The poem is called We Will Miss Your Smile. We played while you struggled. You spoke to Jesus We all understood so little. You were caring, loving, and kind. We gave you olives. You were observant, knowing all of our idiosyncrasies. You spoke words of encouragement. Every glance has its own beauty. You complimented us, noticing it all. We gave you jujubes. You lay in bed, entangled with fears. You worried about us. How are you feeling? Are you okay? We gave you black licorice. You were concerned about your roommate. We gave you potato chips for him. You appreciated everything we did for you. Please and thank you. Let me buy you dinner. You were always generous, giving away what you had. You felt deeply, breathed heavily, thought intensely, trapped by your mind. In our eyes, your life was very difficult. We tried to understand how you could still smile. You gave us so much. We gave you Twizzlers sort of captures what you've been saying, that, that in fact, he gave you almost more than you gave him, at least mm-hmm. the poem seems to suggest. Does that feel true to you? Yeah, I, I feel that there was something very unusual that was happening with him, you know, that just like you said, most of the times when you think of somebody who's mentally ill, receiving all the care, but Somehow, you know, if you ascribe to a a larger meaning, I feel like he ended up giving a gift. Not only did he give give a gift of himself, but also gave us the opportunity to give. And and in some ways, there's more pleasure in that. Mm. Do you know? Yes, I remember when somebody defining ministry as receiving others' gifts. And I'm struck by that. He received your gifts. Right. In a way that meant so much to you. Mm -hmm. So the last question I want to ask you, he says, about his very premature death, we know that people who suffer from major mental illness, schizophrenia in particular, tend to die so much younger than the rest of the population, which clearly happened to your brother. And I wondered if you could speak a little bit about how that was for him and how you understood that? Well, I think the way that I understood, I mean, he just had such a stressful life, and obviously the medication helped him, but 
I mean, he was on a lot of medication for a long time, which I'm sure took its wear and tear. It just, it's almost like having a compressed, you know, the amount of stress is compressed, and I think it just takes its toll. I mean, I think there are huge gaps in in the care. I mean, we've always had a hard time finding suitable housing for him or a place that he could live that would be less stressful. So what I'm hearing is that these medicines often cause side effects like weight gain, diabetes, that can shorten someone's life. Then the impact of the stress of their illness can have a life-shortening effect. You know, there's so often... People with mental illness are often smokers that can shorten life. That's right. Often it's harder to find primary care doctors or good medical care. Does it sound like all, it sounds like almost all of those factors were true in his life. That's right. Knowing how much you loved him, imagine that was so painful to watch that, to see him get ill so young and not be able to stop it. Yeah. It was really hard because the day that he died, we went to the hospital and, you know, it was time of residence and we gave the no resuscitation order in you know at 11 in the morning and my sister went back at 7:30 at night to visit him and he had been they had just spent 3 hours resuscitating him so even at the very end it was <laughs> screwed up your wishes were not respected they didn't call us they didn't let us know that he had been in crisis and we had to, and it was so hard the second time. It's one thing to say not to resuscitate him at the time, but it was so hard to sit in the room next to him and have them again to to request that they take out all the tubes. It was really wrenching. Mm. Yeah. I hear that you did that as a real act of love, Isa, so consistent with your relationship all those years. Yeah. I want to thank you so much for paying such tribute to your brother, Artie. Uh, I would imagine that he would feel seen and honored by you today. I hope so. Thank you so much. Thank you. This is Dr. Anne. I've been speaking to Issa Matei about her brother, Artie, and the many years together of his illness and of their very loving relationship. If you'd like to listen to this show in its entirety or email the link to a friend, please go to the website. You can find the show there at www.safespaceradio.com. You can also sign up to get a weekly link to the show. You can also download us from iTunes for your morning commute. You can like us on Facebook. If you would like to email me a request or a suggestion, please do so at Ann at safespaceradio.com. My thanks to Jen Hodston for mixing the sound tonight and to Maurice Lennon for the music. Coming up next is The Watchdog.